We'll uh, go ahead and wrap up our conversations. Find our seats. As you're finding your seats, you can open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there should be a a black hardback one somewhere near you. I believe the passage we're going to look at can be found on page 869. Um, I just want to, from the outset, uh, show my support. I see lots of hog shirts out there today. Uh, So I want to make sure, you know, I mean, it's just a good day to be a Razorback. Um, as we're shooting to go to the College World Series. So even if you're indifferent to baseball, I I would encourage you to adopt the Hogs as your team today. That starts at 2.05. You can throw up a couple of prayers. Although in my experience, uh, God doesn't answer sports prayers. It's just been my, I don't know. My kids always tell me I need to just pick a different team, but I'm going to stick with it. One of these days, he's going to hear my cry. All right. Um, We're going to continue uh, our series Uh, called Kingdom in Paradox, as we look at the parables of Jesus. Um, Today, we're going to look at the idea of biblical compassion. What does biblical compassion look like? Where does biblical compassion come from? And I I don't think there's a more important or poignant topic that we can look at um, as a church. Um, As you look out at the world. And if you scroll through social media on any particular day, you're going to see uh, a growing divide uh, among Christians about what compassion looks like. I mean, there is a divide over how we should address the racial tension that exists in our country, whether it's Ferguson or Baltimore. It doesn't matter. There is a, a growing divide among Christians. What does compassion look like there? There's a a growing divide socially. Like, all you have to do is take the last couple of weeks. And, I mean, Christians have wide varieties of views on on what what does it mean, the the scandal that the Duggars are walking through, or Bruce Jenner. I mean, those things are firecrackers for controversy, right? And so what is being exposed there is, is what do we believe love looks like? What do we believe compassion looks like? Well, thankfully, like... Jesus is not silent on this topic, and it's something that we're going to look at as we look at Luke 10 this morning. But um, this week I was I was reading Romans chapter eight, and that's a it's a great chapter where uh, it just talks about we don't have any condemnation in Jesus Christ. But then there's this whole section in there that talks about the groaning that we have inside of us because we have the Spirit and there's a a groaning that's taking place in the world when we're exposed to the continual brokenness and depravity that takes place in front of us. That, that, uh, That groaning as it grows inside of us is a mark that the Spirit is at work. I mean, one of our our fundamental convictions as a church is that the gospel changes everything that it touches. That God's not just interested in saving souls, but actually the gospel brings renewal everywhere that it goes. And so um, we're just excited to be able to look at what does it mean for the kingdom of God and the King Jesus to bring that love through his people to a broken world. And that's what we're going to look at in Luke chapter 10. Um, This week I was... Um, reading the book Generous Justice by Tim Keller. And most of you, I don't don't know if you're familiar with Tim Keller, but there is anybody that's done more for Christianity and helping 
people connect their faith to all of life, it's Tim Keller. And um, he describes a time in his life where he was going through a real crisis of faith, where he was seeing this wide disparity between people that had this great doctrine. They had this beautiful picture of God's grace, but they tended to segregate and isolate themselves from the world so they were kind of gathered in holy huddles. Like we've all seen examples of that. So, I mean, that began to mess with his mind. Um, and then there, there was in his, in his world, there were uh, also a growing group of people that were involved in um, social justice and seeing the civil rights movement go forward in the 1960s. And he couldn't reconcile in his mind how people could have this great doctrine on one hand and then be empathetic to the world on the other hand. And it was when he had a, a dinner with someone that he was in seminary with in the 1960s, he and his wife, Kathy, they, they had dinner with this young African-American man. And he challenged Tim Keller and he said, Tim, you're a racist and you don't even know it. He said, he said, you don't mean to be, but there's just this fundamental assumption that you have about the world, that the way that you see the world is the way things ought to be. And so Tim Keller in that moment saw that he was blind to the culture around him because he kind of had cultural goggles on. Like he assumed that the way that he saw the world was just the way that the world ought to be. And so that young man ended up challenging the way that he saw the world. And he gave himself to the study of scripture. He gave himself to see what the implications were. And, and, and we are all the, the beneficiaries of it. But it's that kind of world-shaping kind of change in paradigm, how we're going to see the world, that, that God is going to get at us through Luke chapter 10 in a familiar parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So if you have your Bibles open, would you join with me as we read Luke 10? We're going to go from verses 25 through 37. Could you stand with me? And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. 
Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, Take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, to be able to see the things that you want us to see... We need you to open our eyes. We readily confess that it's easy, easier for us to not see than to see. It's easy for, easier for us to not care than to care. Just reading this passage exposes our hearts. I pray that you in the midst of um, this passage would help us to be able to grow, that you would help us to be able to see the world from your perspective. And more than that, to see the, the coming of your son say something to the way that we live our everyday ordinary lives, see his love inform our love for the world. Father, I pray that we would be different. I pray that our city would be different. So to do that, we need your spirit's help. I need your help to proclaim this. I pray that you would help me to proclaim this word and make it clear to this church that I love. In Jesus' name, amen. And from the outset, I want to say this about biblical compassion. If we have one strength as a church, it's it's this. Okay, so this is not... um, This is not corrective to us. But I think what God wants to do through Luke chapter 10 this morning is to fan this into flame. There's a way that you can interpret this parable and you can make it all about you and all about what you have to do. And you can kind of fall into that moralistic trap. So we want to be able to to read this passage because primarily this parable is about Jesus and not about us, right? So we want to be able to understand how does this parable reveal Jesus? And as we look at this parable and how it reveals Jesus, it's going to be uh, able to empower us to do what he's called us to do. So the key to interpreting Luke chapter 10 in the parable of the Good Samaritan is really found in this, uh, the, the preface. Look at verses 25 through 28. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So what we have is the kind of in Luke 10 is the latest installment of Jesus having to play 20 questions with the religious leaders of the day. 
Um, Jesus was growing in influence and popularity. And so the religious leaders of the day, they were growing jealous of Jesus's influence. And so they were always trying to back him in a corner. They were always trying to put him on the spot to see if they could find some fault in his theology or the way that it intersected with the world. So this lawyer, and you can insert your favorite lawyer joke here. He's the one that puts Jesus to the test at this particular moment. He says, He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now you have to understand that those two things in and of themselves are diametrically opposed. Doing and inheriting are opposites. This is a nonsensical question where he's trying to trick Jesus. It's kind of akin to something that you would hear in philosophy class. Like, if a tree falls in the wood, would it make a noise? I mean, it's that kind of nonsensical question that this lawyer is asking Jesus. But Jesus actually cares about this man and he wants to be able to expose this man's heart. So he flips the question back on the lawyer and he says, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And this lawyer gives the textbook answer that any Jew would give at this particular time. He said, you're supposed to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, right? And you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. And you can just imagine Jesus probably had a smile on his face a little bit when he says, you do this and you'll live, right? I mean, he's, he's kind of trying to expose this lawyer's heart. And then he takes it a little bit further. This is, if you're going to underline like one part of this scripture, this is the part. Verse 29. Verse 29 says, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So this is about this lawyer trying to justify himself by his actions before Jesus, before God, and before the whole world. And and what was going on at this particular time? The reason he asked, who is my neighbor? Like there was this growing trend like among the Jewish leaders of the day where they were growing more and more sectarian, where they were basically, they knew that there was this call for compassion and to love your neighbor as yourself. But the only way that you can keep that law is if you make that circle super small. So they made the circle like, basically the, the people that are my neighbors are the people that think like I do, the people that act like I do, the people that look like I do all the people that I hang around. Like basically, I'm supposed to love those kinds of people the way that I love myself. So there's this this growing sectarianism that's happening among the religious leaders of the day. And so Jesus uses the, the parable of the Good Samaritan to do two things to this lawyer. And it's supposed to do two things to us. So first of all, it's supposed to expose our gospel need, right? I mean, can we just be honest from the outset? Like, what God wants from us is, is more than we can do, right? I mean, it's His call for us to be able to love our neighbor as ourselves. that's a little bit higher than we can go to. So it's supposed to expose us, right? So that we don't think that we can pull this off in our own strength. But then it's supposed to simultaneously expand our gospel concern, right? I mean, the reason that the book of Luke is in the Bible is because this is the universal gospel. 
This is God cares about all people from all tribes, from all tongues, from all languages, from all nations, right? So he wants to expand our gospel concern and he does it by helping us come face to face with the familiar story of the Good Samaritan. So Jesus wants to expose this lawyer's heart and he wants to expose our hearts this morning. So he tells the familiar story. He tells the story of a man going from the Jerusalem road down to Jericho. Presumably this man is a Jew. And you have to imagine this, like Jerusalem is elevated. So there was an elevation drop of about 3,300 feet from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Just for a point of reference, the highest point in Arkansas, by the way, is Arkansas History Buffs. Mount Magazine, 20, just over 2,700 feet, right? So this is a steep drop on the Jericho Road. And it was winding and it was narrow and it was famous. It was called the, the Way of Blood. It was normal for robbers and thieves to hide out on this road. And so this man takes this Jerusalem road down to Jericho. He falls among robbers and thieves. And and at this point, I mean, you just have to imagine you're hearing this for the first time. Imagine you're the lawyer. I mean, this makes sense, right? I mean, this, this is a common scenario. So the first person that comes along is a priest. Surely this is going to be the guy that's going to be the hero, right? I mean, this is the guy that's familiar with human weakness. He offers sacrifices for the sins of the people every day. Surely he's going to see this man in need and he's going to be the hero. But what does the guy do? He walks on the other side. Second, here comes a Levite, another person that works in the temple, familiar with human weakness, sees it every day, sees the brokenness and futility of the world. Okay, well, probably maybe the priest was afraid that he was going to be defiled and he wouldn't be able to offer sacrifices. So surely this Levite is going to step in and he's going to be the one that's going to be the hero, right? But it's at this point, and this is where Jesus is the master storyteller. He puts a hook in the story and he says, along came a Samaritan. And you have to imagine, I mean, the the man hearing this story, to the man hearing the story, the Samaritan is a half-breed. He is a heretic. I mean, Jews would spit after they said Samaritan. It would just defile their mouth. So there was real intense hatred. And Jesus very intentionally makes someone that this man hates to become the hero in the story. So this is the one who with great cost to himself begins to bind up the wounds of the man that is wounded on the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And when Jesus got through telling that particular parable, you could have heard a pin drop. You can imagine this lawyer who had a gift of words, right? Having to pick up his jaw off the floor when Jesus said, which of these three people proved to be a neighbor? The man was so full of hatred that he couldn't even bring himself to say, Samaritan. He said, the one that showed mercy. So it was at that point that Jesus says, you go and do likewise. 
So at that point, that man's heart is fully exposed, right? I mean, he was coming face to face with the fact that he did not possess that kind of love in and of himself. He was coming to an end of himself. The, the idea of justifying himself was being laid aside. So, and this is where we can either go the moralistic route or we can go the gospel route, okay? Who wants to go on the gospel route this morning? All right, let's do that, all right? Probably we'll go better. You have to read this story from a particular point of view, right? The, the, the point of view that we most often take is what? The Good Samaritan, right? We, we're the Good Samaritan. You always have to read a story from a certain point of view. Now, this is the first week uh, my kids were out of school. And uh, my youngest son, Haddon, has a cast on his arm. And so we're not able to go to the pool yet. So what's happening in the Rogers house right now is uh, movie marathons, like every day. And so the, the kind of movies that they like the most are like the action hero movies, right? So, I mean, it's Captain America, it's Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, and everybody in my house this week got a new lightsaber. So Star Wars is on the docket. And there's always this conversation before they queue up any movie. Like, it's like, I'm going to be Luke Skywalker. I'm going to be Luke Skywalker. You know, you can be Han Solo. I'm going to be Luke Skywalker. And, right? Am I, am I lying? And Zoe, since you're a girl, you can be Princess Leia. So there's always this, like, they want to get into the story and they want to be able to read it from a particular point of view because that's the reason that stories are given to us is because you're supposed to see things from the point of view of the character and you're supposed to feel what they feel, right? And we do ourselves a great disservice if we just assume that we're supposed to be the Good Samaritan, right? There are things that we are going to apply from the Good Samaritan, but this passage primarily is about us not justifying ourselves, sorry, by our good works. So the first person I think that, that we have to be able to identify with is the lawyer, right? We all have this tendency in and of ourselves to want to justify ourselves by what we do, right? We, and to be able to justify yourselves by what you do, you have to lower the bar so that you can make it attainable. So we have to take passages like Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, I want you to be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. What do you do with a passage like that? Well, we kind of round off the corners. Surely Jesus doesn't mean that we're supposed to be perfect, right? I mean, he means basically you need to try your best, you know, give it a good try. And when you mess up, acknowledge, you know, I messed up, right? So we, we round off the corners of trying to be perfect. We come face to face with a passage like this where it says you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. We reduce that down to like, we need to be kind to other people. Uh, we need to be nice to them as long as they don't get in our way and keep us from getting what we really want, uh, especially in traffic. Like that's the kind of, of way that we typically round off these kinds of verses. So we try to make God's commands, love your neighbor as yourself, as basically be nice to other people. And when we do that, we do ourselves a great disservice. There should be 
Like as we look at this passage and you look at the sacrificial love of the Good Samaritan for this man on the Jerusalem road, there should be something in you that says, I don't love like that. Most of the time, I'm disinterested with other people. Most of the time, I'm focused on myself. Most of the time, I would stop maybe if I wasn't busy and I didn't have too much going on later that night, right? I mean, that's the way that we tend to process this passage. So we think that we can pull it off, but this passage is given to us to show us that we could never really pull it off, right? None of us love people fully and completely and compassionately and sacrificially. We just don't do it. We don't possess that kind of love. We need help from the outside. If we're ever going to try to imitate the works of the Good Samaritan, we have to understand a couple of other things that this passage reveals. So you can identify with the lawyer. The second person that you should kind of identify with in this passage is the person that's stranded on the road, right? The person that's fallen under attack. The person that is desperate. The person that is sick. The person that is wounded. The person that needs rescue, right? I mean, that is a picture of us. That is a picture of what sin does to us personally. It not only affects our lives, but it affects the way that we see the world. So we're supposed to identify with this man on the side of the road. And who is the Good Samaritan? Jesus is the Good Samaritan. We are the ones that are in need of desperate rescue. He's the one that should naturally be our enemy, but he's the one that shows compassion to us. And if we don't understand that, if we don't come in contact with that kind of love, that kind of one-way love where he owes us completely the opposite of mercy, if we don't come in contact with that, we're never going to be able to fulfill the command of this passage. Jesus is the good Samaritan. He's the one that heals us so that we can heal other people. He's the one that binds our wounds so that we can bind the wounds of others. And if we miss that, right, we're just going to be trying to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and do this in our own strength. Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, says this, before you can give this neighbor love, you need to receive it. Only if you see that you have been saved graciously by someone who owes you the opposite, will you go out into the world looking to help absolutely anyone in need. Once we receive this ultimate radical neighbor love through Jesus, can we start to be the neighbors that the Bible calls us to be? have to come in contact with the fact that we have been loved with an everlasting love. That God values people so much and he values us so much that he left heaven and he came to earth and he took on the punishment that we deserve so that we go free. The only way that we ever will be able to expend 
ourselves and extend compassion to the world is to receive the compassion of the Savior. If you find yourself in your heart cold towards compassion for other people, it's because you've grown familiar with the compassion of the Savior. So we have to come face to face with the greatest Samaritan, Jesus, who came to us in our brokenness and our sin to rescue us so that we can spend our lives now laboring for the rescue of others. See, this isn't about justifying ourselves. Martin Luther famously said, God does not need our good works. He does not. But our neighbor does. So this is a picture of what redemptive love looks like, right? Now that we're freed from living life for ourselves and Jesus has rescued us, now we're able to live life for him. So we want to see what does redemptive love look like. The first thing I think that this passage reveals to us is that we're called, and this kind of gospel love is to love without distinction. All of us are fallen. All of us are broken. All of us tend to categorize people, right? Oftentimes we judge people by the way that they sin. And we tend to want to isolate ourselves away from people that sin differently than we do, right? And and when we begin to do that, we kind of give off the, the message that people have to clean up their life before they can meet Jesus. What we need to understand is that more and more, the the gospel comes to us and God loves us without distinction. I want to read you this quote from uh Nadia Bolt Weber. She is a Lutheran pastor and theologian. She made this very astute comment. She says, every time that we draw a line between us and others, Jesus is always on the other side. So every time in our lives where we think we are here and other people are over here, Jesus is over here with the other people, right? Jesus came into the world to save sinners, right? He came for the sick, not for the healthy. He came for the broken, not for the whole. And so anytime that we begin to make categories in our mind about who needs mercy and who needs care, The more that we do that, we keep ourselves from experiencing the mercy of Jesus, right? So we begin to make up like categories in our mind. Like we think there's the poor and then there's the deserving poor, right? I mean, we want to make sure that if we're going to help somebody that they deserve it, right? Um, We we think we worked hard for what we have. And so we want to make sure that, that we are able to distinguish who deserves mercy. When we do that, I mean, that's more of a political argument than it is a gospel one. When we do that, we forget that God showed us mercy and it was completely our fault, right? I mean, he rescued us from our sin and our rebellion. And because he has touched us at that level, it frees us to be able to begin to love without distinction. It doesn't matter if someone is at the bottom and it's their fault. That's where we found ourselves because of sin. And that's the message of the gospel that wants to set us free to be able to love without distinction. At any particular moment, you have to understand that no matter what form of brokenness you come in contact with in the world, you have more in common with that person than you do with Jesus. 
right? You know what it's like to live in a fallen world. You know what it's like to be broken by sin. You know what it's like to need rescue, right? We don't want to put up walls of distinction in our heart. We don't want to segregate our lives and our hearts from people. We want to be people that have our hearts open because they've been opened by the love of Jesus. That's what the parable of the Good Samaritan is supposed to produce in us. And this is, I mean, when I was reading this parable, um, I think it was last week, and what really stood out to me, it says three times in there, it says, the person saw, right? So it says the Levite saw him, the priest saw him, and the Samaritan saw him and gave compassion to him. And it made me ask that question, what is it that makes us be able to consider people invisible? Because everybody saw this man on the side of the road. What took place in their minds and in their hearts that allowed them to pass by on the other side? It's the same thing that happens in our own hearts. You have to be able to distance yourself from their humanity, right? And the the reason that Jesus came into the world is to restore the image of God in mankind, right? So no matter how broken someone is, no matter how marred they are by sin, what Jesus wants us to be able to do is see them as people that have been made in his image with an eternal soul. He wants to be able to free us to be able to love without distinction. He doesn't want people to be invisible. I was thinking also about this. Like, as Christians, you have to wrestle with this. Why is the Red Cross more effective at extending mercy than the church? We have to be able to answer that question. Why is the Red Cross more effective than the church at extending mercy and care to the world? I think it has to do with this idea of making distinction. We as Christians have grown really comfortable in segregating our hearts from certain kinds of people. I mean, you might think that it's a, it's a financial issue. The Red Cross has an annual budget of $30 billion has 30,000 full-time employees, 500,000 volunteers a year. And you have seen the effects. Like, no matter whether there's a, a storm or a tragedy, I mean, they are there. They are mobilized. I think there are structural issues and unity issues in the church. But do you know what the annual income of the Church of Jesus Christ is? $2.5 trillion dollars per year. 80% of that resides in North America. In addition to that, the Church of Jesus Christ, not including homes, has $5 trillion in assets. We, by any stretch of the imagination, are the most blessed people in the history of the world. And that's not to make us it's not to make us feel bad about what we have, but we do have to ask the question What are we supposed to do with that kind of wealth? What are we supposed to do with that kind of influence? We have all of these resources, but we tend to quarantine our lives off from people that are in need. And I believe that God wants to use this passage in particular. And I think we do a good job, but I think he wants to fan this into flame for us as a people. 
I believe he wants to fan this into flame so that we can be more effective missionaries in our city. I mean, I believe at the the very least, this passage calls us as a response to who Jesus is and what he's done for us is to love the people that are in front of us, right? All of us have people that we come in contact with day in and day out. What would it be like to just listen to the Spirit and ask, what do you want me to do when you come into contact with someone that's in need? What would it be like if our gospel communities that we believe deeply in begin to pray and ask God to show us how we can make a difference in our cities and in our neighborhood? What would it be like if we began to ask God to act on us in such a way that we came alive to the gospel story, that we were passionate about other people reaching that, right? And and receiving that as a gift. What would it be like for us to begin to see God fan that into flame? And I know many of you are giving your life to that, but what I'm asking and pleading for, this is the reason that the church exists, is to see the kingdom of God grow and expand, right? I am passionate about what we do here. But if this is all we do, we are abject failures in the area of church, right? This is just so that we can come together, so that we can be instructed, so that we can be encouraged, so that we can go and fill the world with the presence of Christ. He wants to do that. And we want to do that in a way that's informed by the gospel, right? But he, I believe, wants to expand our gospel concern. So I'm just praying that God would use just a few things that we talked about today to to breathe his Holy Spirit on us as a people, right? So that we're not naturally those people that walk by on the other side, but we begin to just say, what if one time out of 10 this week that we stop to care, right? And we see God use that and continue to build and continue to grow, right? When we just live lives for ourselves, we shrink the size of God's kingdom down to the size of our lives. Our lives become meaningless and purposeless. But as we begin to ask God to open up our eyes to see things that He sees, the world becomes this beautiful canvas on which He is making beautiful displays out of the dust and out of the ashes where we see Him working in people's lives. That's what we're praying for God to do you join me in praying. Father, we just pray that you would help us come alive to your story, help us come alive to your love. Father, I pray that we wouldn't do this in our own strength, but I pray that you would open our eyes so that we would see. I pray that you would give